Well, just the last uh, line here on the screen is where we ended last week, and it's where I want to begin uh, tonight. And it is the recognition that when we talk about Satan, or when we talk about the devil, we are using terms that come straight from Scripture, and they are definitive terms, and they are descriptive terms. So God, in giving us his word, wants us to know who Satan is and how he operates. He wants us to know who the devil is, same person, and how the devil operates, so that we are not confused. So the word Satan is a Hebrew word. It comes into English. The Hebrew word is Satan. And it comes directly into English. We just take the Hebrew word, bring it into English. But in English, it means adversary. Satan is our adversary. He is not for us. He is against us. And he comes through his demons to assault and attack us. I've said this before. I want to say it again. I want you and I as believers to be clear about this. As a believer, you cannot be demon-possessed, but you can be demon-attacked and demon-assaulted. That's good news and bad news, right? There are those who are not believers that uh, live such lifestyles that they are possessed of demons, and there's no mental treatment, no emotional treatment, no physical treatment, no medical treatment, no psychotherapy in any way that will address that demonic power in their lives. Only the power of God through the Holy Spirit can extricate that kind of demonic stronghold in the lives of people. We don't face that as believers, but we do face the assault and attack of the demons. Satan is our adversary. Now, the word devil is not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. And it's a word that means literally to divide our will. So how will Satan attack you? The Bible is clear. He wants to divide your will. And the division of the will works like this. Satan wants you to declare your love for God while at the same time declaring your love for the world. Uh, Satan wants you to hold the Bible and say, I love this book, this is the Word of God, but then he wants you to live according to the principles and patterns of this age. It is Satan who rules over this age, and he does so by God's design. As he rules over this age, he has created a system, a value system, a value system that is held by the world and by people of the world, and that value system attaches itself to our basic fleshly desires. You and I, every one of us, when we're born, we're born with desires. The Bible makes no judgment on those desires. A desire to eat when you're hungry is a bad desire? Yes? No. It's a good desire. A desire to drink when you're thirsty is not a bad desire. It's a good desire, but what Satan does is that he creates a world system that links up with our desires and turns those desires into cravings. And those cravings begin to so consume us 
that we begin to define our lives by those cravings so that we begin to think we can't live without, you fill in the blank. And we take good desires given by God, they begin to dominate and control our lives. Satan has divided our will, and we become, as a result, the most miserable people in the world. Now, there are churches that are full of miserable people because they're full of people who have so compromised their commitment to Jesus as Lord, so driven and dominated by their fleshly desires, so captured by the world that their will is constantly, perpetually, unendingly divided. There's no person more miserable than a miserable Christian. And there's no person that you don't want to be around more than a miserable Christian, grumbling, complaining, always finding problems, always finding fault. Deep down inside, they have a spiritual problem, and that spiritual problem is they have a divided will that is brought on by the devil successfully doing his work as the adversary in their lives. So let's talk about the devil and demons. Number one, they're real. They're real. Now, I would pray tonight, there's there's not a single person in here that would say, under your breath and to yourself, no, they're not. Liberal Christianity, which I don't believe is Christianity at all, liberal Christianity says demons are not real and that the devil is simply the creation of our imagination to explain bad things that are happening in the world. No, no, no. The devil's real. Demons are real. And de- the devil and the demons that are under his authority are operative all over the world. They're not only real, they're personal. They come against you and I as believers. Thirdly, they're deceptive. Wouldn't it be great if When Satan is coming against us and the devil is tempting us, he were to come up to us, tap us on the back and say, hey, I'm the devil and I'm here to destroy your life. Wouldn't that be easy? The Bible says Satan comes to us how? As an angel of light. Very deceptive. And very ultimately destructive. John 10, Jesus says the devil and the demons are out to kill us, to destroy us. John 8 says the devil and demons are liars. But here's the good news. The devil and the demons have limited methods. And you and I, biblically, can know what those methods are. Satan is our adversary. The devil wants to divide our will. So what the devil and demons want to do is to distract us and thus to distort our devotion to God. Satan wants you as a believer to see someone who's absolutely sold out to Jesus as just a wee bit nuts. As someone who's fully surrendered and submitted to Jesus as Lord, as someone who stepped over the line and probably, in fact, has some kind of mental disorders. That's how Satan wants you 
as a Christian, professing Christian, to see people who are true believers, who are absolutely sold out and surrendered to Jesus. God has overcome the devil through the blood of the cross so that when we respond to Jesus as Lord and receive the power of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have won the victory through Jesus Christ And the devil can seduce us, the devil can deceive us, the devil can lie to us, the devil can do through his demons whatever he seeks to do, but he cannot destroy us because from the moment that we profess faith in Jesus, we are sealed and secure forever in Jesus, forever. C.S. Lewis says, and this word here should be uh, not, not night, (laughs) This is what he says, we must not see demons everywhere, but we must not ever dismiss them as if they are not anywhere. Now, I I have met people that see demons everywhere, everywhere, they're everywhere. Those people don't bother me nearly as much as those people who see demons nowhere. And they use mental, emotional psychotherapeutic categories to explain away the demonic. In fact, you can find liberal commentators that will say that what we used to call being possessed of demons, now we call psychological and psychiatric disorders. That is insane. It's biblically insane. There are psychiatric and psychological disorders, to be sure. But there is still also those who are either under the assault of the demonic or they are not believers and may in fact be possessed by the demonic and only the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in us, giving us the gift of discernment, can know the difference. Now, while I'm talking, one of the things you may be thinking is, and this would be a right thing to think, by the way, (laughs) I don't see much evidence of the demonic in our culture. Therein is the problem. I would argue that we've been so seduced in our culture that we don't see the activity of the devil nearly as much as he is active. And I believe that we need to ask God to open our eyes so that we can see. So let's ask God to open our eyes, help us to see. Satan accuses the believer by causing us to operate with a divided will. Now let's turn to what many scholars believe, and I think they're right, as the very first book in our canon, the book of Job. Charlie has for two weeks led us in our first family ministry time in looking at the book of Job. And uh, it's been so encouraging to me because he has trusted the Holy Spirit to lead him in understanding the book of Job, and I think he sees more accurately what the book of Job is about than most people in our day. And it's been very encouraging and helpful. 
Look at Job chapter 1. This is a time when there was concourse between heaven and earth, Satan coming into the counsel of God, and so forth. Verse 6 of Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, which is a statement about the devotion of his heart toward God in worship, and turns away from evil, which is a statement about the direction of, God, of Job in his life as being one who was morally blameless. So he's spiritually upright and morally blameless. In verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Now, Satan's operating premise is that there's not a person in this room who serves God for nothing. His operating premise is that all of us serve God wanting something from God. That the reason we give ourselves to God is the blessings and the benefits of knowing God and serving God. We don't serve God just because he's God. Now, here's, here's what I think is true for and if this is not you, praise God, and this is wonderful for you. But I don't think that we start serving God just because he's God. I gave my life to Jesus and began to follow God as God simply because I didn't want to go to hell. Anybody with me? That was my only motivation. Heaven was nice, but hell was repulsive. I wanted to be delivered from hell. As I learned who God is through his word, as his Holy Spirit taught me, I grew to a place where I'm still learning to love God for being God, period. I think we learn that. I think we grow into that. We don't serve God for nothing. We serve God because he's God, and that's the whole idea here. But what Satan is raising is that we serve God because of his benefits. You take away his benefits and we wouldn't serve God anymore. Let me frame this in a different way. Would we want to go to heaven if we knew the only person in heaven was Jesus? Or would we be content to go to heaven if Jesus weren't there, but those who've gone before us that we love are? That's a question about worship. It's a question about obedience. And God grows us to the place over time where God is so precious and sweet and desirable to us. He's our treasure that we serve him because he is God. Does Job fear God for no reason? Now listen to what Satan says. This is very, very important. Verse 10, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
you protect him. When, when we pray for God to put a hedge of protection around someone, where do we get that from? Book of Job. And it's Satan saying to God, he serves you because you protect him. He not only protects Job, he, he provides for Job. You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. So he's protected, he's provided for, and he's prosperous. But, verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Nobody serves God just because he's God. That's Satan's modus operandi. That's what causes him to attack us, and that's where he attacks us. So the Lord said to Satan, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, which reminds us, and I'll bring this up later, that Satan has no power in your life that God does not grant him. So Satan is limited by the purpose of God in your life. Will God give Satan permission to attack you? Yes. But it is for good ends. It is for God-glorifying ends. It's for Christ-exalting ends. This is what Satan wants. He wants every believer to question either the goodness of God or the power of God are both. If God is good, why is there evil? He wants you raising that question. And it's a question unbelievers raise all the time because they're unbelievers. If God is good, why is there evil? If he's good, he can stop evil. And if he can't stop evil, it is because he has the power. He doesn't have the power to stop it. If he's powerful enough to stop evil and he doesn't, then he's not good. If he's good and doesn't stop evil, then he's not powerful. This is the way Satan works. He's limited. He does this in our hearts. So things go wrong in our lives as believers, and we face horrible situations And Satan is attacking us. And he wants us to be angry with God and raise up our hands and say, Why? (laughs) And there are wonderfully well-intentioned Christians that say, Go ahead. It's fine. And Satan mocks us. Because we're dealing with God. What Satan wants is to establish a view of God in which we see God as the deity that exists for us to fulfill our best wishes and all of our earthly desires. So Satan comes against Job. You know the story about what happened with his belongings and his children Verse 20 of chapter 1, look at it. Then Job arose, tore his robe, 
and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And what did he do? He worshiped. He's just lost all of his family. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He lives his life under the absolute sovereignty of God. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't throw up his hands in despair and point his fingers at God and express wrath toward God or raise those why questions. He just trusted God. Now, chapter 2 of Job, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, I've come from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God asserting his sovereignty even over Satan. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hands, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot and the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Blaming God. This is what she's doing. Curse God, blaspheme God, and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not we receive evil? Again, this is Job understanding the greatness of God. You see, what Satan wants Job to think is that God owes him good and that God owes him health. And that if God were God and God were good and God were powerful, God would restore his health. Do you understand that as believers it is good, right, and proper that we pray for people who are sick? It is good, right, and proper. But we better be careful that what we're praying for is that God would be magnified in whatever condition they face physically so that we don't worship at the altar of healing. That is dangerous for us. So that what we're really after is the healing, not the Holy One. 
What we're after is the Holy One. And when you're praying to the Holy One in the midst of sickness, if someone gets well, you give praise to God. But what do you do if they die? You do the same thing. You give praise to God. You magnify the Lord because He is the one who rules and reigns. What Satan wants to do is establish in our hearts a view of God who exists for us. The one who gives us or should give us the life that we think we should have. You know, there are passages in the Bible that... that uh, I, I, they, they, uh, they intrigue me. I go back to them over and over and over and over again in my own quiet times, in my own personal study, because I, I'm intrigued by them. One of them is in Mark 4, so turn with me to Mark 4. It is the first parable that Jesus taught in Mark 4 for which he gave an explanation, and I want you to see the explanation. I taught Mark 4 to our students on Wednesday night, and one of the things I wanted to teach them was how to read the Bible like any other book. I think we read books, and then we pick up the Bible, and we read it like, ah, I can't read it like other books. Well, you can't read it at all unless you begin by reading it like other books. Now, the interpretation of the Bible comes through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, but we read it. So I... I was trying to teach them how to read this book, and in the parable of the sower, uh, there are some things in that parable that are constant. They stay the same. And then there are things that change. So when you read the parable of the sower, what's constant? The seed, right? The sower, and the act of sowing. What changes? It's the key to the parable. What changes? The soil. It's, it's the way you read it. You've got this seed that is the gospel. You've got this sower, which is all of us who sow the gospel, and we go about the business of sowing. That's constant. But the soils change. And Satan is present because he wants us to see God in a certain way. So, Look at Mark 4, verse 15. This is the interpretation that Jesus gave to the disciples. These are the ones, begin in verse 15, and these are the ones along the path. You know, some of the seed, the gospel sown along the path, where the word is sown, when they hear, who's there immediately? Immediately, who's there? Satan. Satan knows when the gospel is being shared. He always knows. And he's after the seed. Don't believe the gospel. Don't trust Jesus. Wait. Nebuchadnezzar waited how long? A year. Satan's there to grab the gospel seed. You don't need this. This is not for you. You're a different kind of person. You can make it on your own. Be strong. 
But then there are the, there's the seed that's sown on rocky ground. They hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They don't know the gospel, they don't understand scripture, they've never been taught. They endure for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Who's there? Satan. You ever had anybody say to you, give your life to Jesus? It's the best life in the world. And from this point on, you will have the wonderful life with no problems. Anybody ever told you that? It's a lie. Satan knows it's a lie. So when your life, because you're a faithful follower of Jesus, but you begin to experience difficulty because of your devotion to Jesus, And you were told this is a wonderful life, and you're Satan whispers, they lied to you. Look at the problems you're having. They walk away. Then there are those that fell among the thorns. They hear the word. They're looking for that good life, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. The flesh meets the communicated desires of the world through Satan, and they choke the word. That's Satan, and there is no fruit because Satan is constantly attacking and assaulting particularly the young and immature believer. Herman Bavink, who was a wonderful theologian out of Holland in the late 19th, early 20th, 20th century, says that typically in our lives we go through Four stages of faith. I want you to think about this in your own life. Maybe this is true of you. Maybe it's not. Our first faith is what he calls historic faith. We believe because our mamas and daddies taught us to believe. And our faith is their faith. The only faith we have is their faith. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's a wonderful thing. I hope every parent in here, you have small children, you are praying with your children at home, you are teaching them the Word of God at home. We have no hope as a church if you're not doing that at home. You're instructing them in the Word of God. You're calling them to trust Jesus as Lord, to repent and turn to Jesus. But the first faith they will know is your faith. That's a beautiful thing. But that faith that is borrowed faith has to at some point become their own. And most often it does not until they face the pressures of the world, the enticement of the world, the allurement of the world. That's when you know if they are truly following Jesus and are not just living out of borrowed faith. Then there's temporary faith. Uh, this, is, this is faith that that uh, comes up in the middle of 
a crisis. You're going through a tough time and you will do anything to get out of that tough time. And you turn to Jesus and then the crisis dissipates. You know the story of the man flying on the airplane and the pilot announces for everybody to get on their life vest and get on their oxygen mask that there's going to be a crash. It's inevitable. They're going to plunge into the sea and he cries out, God, if you will just save me from this, I will give you my life completely. They're plummeting toward the ocean and he cries out again, not only will I give you my life completely, I will give you all of my bank account, which was massive. And then somehow they're able to land upon the sea and the man cries out, I'll go to church next Sunday and give you $100. Crisis is over. That's temporary faith. And there's a lot of people who have that faith. Then there's miraculous faith. It's the kind of faith when you get a diagnosis that you're going to die of the cancer that is consuming your body and you're not a believer. And you say to God, I'll give my life to you completely and I will follow you if you will heal me. You have other people praying for that. I've had experiences as a pastor where people have as I stood by their hospital bed, said that if God will grant me healing, and I want you to pray for that, when I get out of here, I will follow Jesus wherever he leads me, and I'll be in church the first Sunday I'm out and from then on. And they usually, if God heals them, they get out. God does heal some. I've seen it happen. And they come to church the first Sunday, but they never come back because it was too hot in there. It was too cold in there. There were too many people in there. You preached too long. The songs were too loud. I don't like that music. Nobody talked to me. And on and on it goes. They've seen God at work. But then there's life-transforming faith where the seed takes root in your heart and Satan can't get to it because God, by His Holy Spirit, has sealed your heart as you have surrendered your life to Jesus. Satan's after that. That's why when... Your children express an interest in following Jesus, or you know people who are expressing an interest in following Jesus, you ought to share the gospel with them. You ought to call them to come to Jesus. And if they give their lives to Jesus, then you ought to be able to know the battle is on. That's when the fight begins. Because Satan is after destroying them through his deception of them. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You all know this passage. Now is when we get down to the nitty-gritty. What are some basic truths about the ways of the devil? He's real, he's active, he's assaulting believers through his demonic hordes. Ephesians 6, verse 10, at the very end of this very powerful and important letter that Paul wrote, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We must be alert and active. We cannot afford to be passive and permissive. 
I don't know. I don't know how any believer functions any day without the Word of God in your heart and without you being on your face before God to pray. I don't know how you function. You're a walking target for the devil every day, and he will get you. Because we must be able to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, stand under the authority of the Word of God, and stand against the the malicious methods of the devil. We must remind ourselves of the gospel every day and all that God gives us in Christ. We've been saved by grace through faith, and we've been called to be faithful to Jesus, and we desire that, and God has given us everything we need to be faithful. We must be reminded that the devil, in Martin Luther's word, is God's devil. He's under God's control. He can only do that which God allows him to do. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. We must be reminded that the system of this world into which we all have bought to some greater or lesser extent, is ruled over by Satan. It connects with our fleshly desires, and it's always communicating to us what we need, what we want, what we should have, how we should live, how we should dress, where we should eat, what we should do, where we should go in order to enjoy the good life. That's Satan's working in the midst of God's world. We must stand under the truth of God and on the truth of God, and we must put on the whole armor of God. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. It comes from God and it is all about God, this armor, that you may be able to stand against the schemes. The word there is a Greek word from which we get our English word methods. His methods are limited. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not at war with each other. We're not fighting each other. We're, against, we're fighting against the rulers of this world, the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers, that demonic group of Satan's minions that rule over this world of darkness. So we need the whole armor of God so that we can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So stand, therefore, put on the belt of truth, God's truth. This book is our only authority. It's all we have. We need to tighten the belt of truth around us, know the Word of God, and stand upon the Word of God. Not only do we need the belt of truth, we need the breastplate of righteousness to protect us, that we're not right in our own eyes and by our own rules and in our own selves. Our righteousness comes by grace from God through Jesus Christ. And put on the shoes of the gospel, that wherever we go, we want to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ taking up the shield of faith that we want to be faithful and Satan's going to hurl his darts at us. One of the best ways Satan works, you know, in an ancient army, the way the shield worked as an army went out to battle 
and they locked themselves together with their shields, arm to arm, so there was no space where there was not a shield, and the enemy would come against them with those fiery darts, and those shields were in place. Often what happens in the church is the soldiers turn on each other. And often when we have wounded among us, we're the first to shoot them. And then stand up on Sunday morning and sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. We are often in the church our own worst enemy. Because rather than encouraging one another and helping one another and praying for one another, we're assaulting and attacking one another. And most of that is behind our backs. And not face to face when we have something to say that needs to be said. Take the helmet of salvation, knowing that we're clothed in salvation. God has secured our salvation. We're safe And the only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Assault, attack the enemy with the Word of God. Take Jesus, as we will see later, as our example. He assaulted Satan with the Word of God. If if Satan could be defeated by Jesus only through the Word of God, what other weapon do you have or I have? And then look at verse, the next verse. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, which is not a special way of praying. It's the way we pray. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit not only prompts us to pray, the Spirit compels us to pray. Pray prayer. That is bowing before God, this word prayer, bowing before God, praising God. Supplication is praying for one another, for each other's needs. We are to pray. We are to pray for one another. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There it is again. Pray for the church. Pray for each other. And then Paul says, pray for me. That words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's arrested even now for preaching the gospel, but he wants them to pray that he would be faithful. Satan has his methods and we have the armor that God has given us and we need to put on the armor of God. Jesus did. I want to make the transition here. I'm going to stop and see if you have any questions or comments. The temptations of Jesus, that's what we're going to talk about next. How did Satan come against Jesus? He came after him through the Word of God. Satan knows the Bible. And he can use it against you and will. You know how he does it? He takes the Bible, fragments it into verses, takes those verses out of context, and gets you to adopt them. The most dangerous thing a believer can do is start 
looking at the Bible as a compendium of text, and we go through it looking for what we need to help us in our situations. That's dangerous. It's deadly. Because the Bible's one book, tells one story, and every verse is to be interpreted in the context of the whole story. Jesus knows that, and he knows the Bible so that when Satan comes against him in the ways that he does, and Satan's methods, again, are limited, and he comes against all of us with the same kinds of allurements and temptations, and we're going to see what those are. So you have questions, comments there. I'll be glad to try to respond to them. I'll be glad to take any comments as well. This is, I hope you know, I hope you hear in my voice, this is a serious issue in our day, in our culture. And we need to pay very close attention to it because Satan is on a rampage. And he's seducing professing believers all over the place. He's disrupting lives. He's destroying families. He's creating chaos. And we cannot act like we don't know what to do because we've been given the power of the Word of God through the Spirit to answer everything he's doing. Well, let's pray together. Father, we are dealing with, in your word, critical, critical issues. Issues that stir Satan to action. Issues that arouse not his curiosity, but his hatred. There's nothing he hates more than your church. And there's nothing that he's more delighted to destroy or see or attempt to destroy than your church. So God, I pray that you would help us even in this study not to be focused on him, but to be focused on you and what you have taught us about all that you have given us to do battle with this enemy of our souls, the deceptive one, the liar, the tempter, the adversary, the one who wants to divide our wills. And God, tonight, would you hear our prayer, even as I pray now for all my brothers and sisters in this room, that during this week you would watch over us and during this week you would govern our lives and guide us and give us discernment because the enemy will come against us, some of us, as soon as we leave this place. And God, would you grow among us increasingly, please, the kind of love for you that spills out in genuine love for one another, where we don't shoot our wounded, we hug them, where we don't talk about our wounded, we talk to them and talk to each other, we, we want to walk as those who hold those shields of faith arm in arm. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, you tell us that.
We're at war against the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness in this present age that you have defeated through the blood of the cross of Jesus and given us victory symbolized and shown to us in the power of the resurrection and imparting to us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that we might live in fullness of joy even in the midst of all that we face in this life. So God, even this week, let your joy grow in us and be manifest in us. And may that joy spill over to others. God, we pray tonight for brothers and sisters who are battling all kinds of things right now. Not the least of which is the recurrence of COVID. We pray for families that have lost loved ones. We pray for those battling tonight. We pray for David Powell and his family and what they're facing and for Dustin and Rebecca and their continued recovery and for Shelley and Jan Griffin and uh, Shelley's bout with this virus and so many, many others. We pray for strength and grace and we pray for the leadership of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we might live in faith and live faithfully and not fearfully, being ministers of the gospel and ministers of grace even in the midst of what would concern us and cause us by nature to draw back, but by your grace we want to move forward. We want to touch people with the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ and the love that you have shown us. Again, tonight we want to pray for those transitioning to college that have already transitioned and some will this week and watch over them, Lord, we pray. Pray for their families and Pray that you would give them what they need in these days in the midst of grieving and in the midst of celebrating as well. Grant your presence, Lord, and your peace and your power to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.